0: Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Jesus, speaking to His disciples when His return to heaven was imminent, gave them the Great Commission. As he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has called us to be disciple makers. And we've been looking in 2 Timothy chapter 2, which is a chapter that focuses on being a disciple maker. Paul gives us, in this second chapter of 2 Timothy, six pictures of what it means to be a disciple-maker. He gives us six pictures that make up one picture. Each of these are parts of the picture, and they all must be put together if we're going to make up the whole picture. As we look at the characteristics of a disciple-maker. You remember we saw the soldier. And Paul said we must have that wholehearted commitment of a soldier in our disciple making. We saw the rule keeping obedience of an athlete. We saw the hard working farmer. We too must be willing to work hard if we're going to be a disciple maker. We saw that the good workman. Handles accurately the word of God. He cuts it straight. We saw the honorable vessel, one who is pure in belief and conduct. And today he rounds out the picture with the sixth picture, which is that of the bond servant. Chapter two, Second Timothy, beginning in verse twenty three. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his Will. Now the application today will be on three levels. The first level is to those who are in spiritual leadership. Paul writing to Timothy, this was his primary application. But also it has the application to each of us who are Christians in our responsibility to be disciple makers. And the third level of application is concerning parents and grandparents. That we have a responsibility to disciple our own children and grandchildren. Now Paul completing the picture of the disciple maker gives us a picture of the bond servant. That's important that we not take just one aspect of the disciple maker and center on that aspect. That will give us an unbalanced picture. That will give us a distorted picture. Like those mirrors that you used to see at the county fair. Where you would get in the mirror and it would make you either look very heavy. You remember those? Or it might make you look very thin. Or it might make the top of your body look very uh, big. And the bottom of your body look very small. But very humorous because it distorted the image. Because it was not given an accurate picture. Well, this is the case with the disciple-maker. If we just sit in on one of these pictures that Paul gives, we will distort the whole picture. For instance, if we only look at the soldier and the wholehearted dedication of a soldier, then you might think a disciple-maker is so gung-ho, he sees himself as in war with everyone. That he's that soldier who's going after it and he runs over people to accomplish his disciple-making task. Or perhaps the law-abiding athlete who again is so determined on reaching the goal that he is insensitive and hard and cold toward people. So Paul, wanting to round out the picture, deals with the interpersonal relational skills of the disciple maker. And to deal with the interpersonal relational skills, he chooses the bond servant to exemplify These relational skills. Now, I think he chooses a bond servant because if you think about it, none of these others require interpersonal relational skills. A soldier doesn't have to be able to get along with anybody. He just has to do what he's told and go to war. An athlete, if he's doing an individual sport, he doesn't have to be able to get along with anybody. He can go out and train by himself and do his thing. If you look at the workman. He can work alone. He doesn't have to have to have interpersonal relational skills in order to be a good workman. The vessel, same way. But when it comes to the bond servant, the master expects the right attitude out of the servant. He expects him to be patient. He expects him to be kind. He expects him to have some interpersonal relational skills. He expects a sense of humility. He expects gentleness. Now, the general does not look for gentleness and meekness in a soldier. He looks for a soldier that's aggressive, that's on fire. A coach would not look for kindness in a football player. In fact, my guys have related to me that there was a guy on their football team the last several years who was a tremendous specimen of Ability and physical conditioning. Uh, he's over six feet tall, and he is strong and and uh, has a tremendous build, uh, and athletic. But you know, he lacks something. The coaches said, "You'd be a great football player if you wasn't so kind." You know, he just doesn't have that killer instinct. That a good football player, a great football player, has to have. You know, and so when you round out the picture. Of a disciple maker, Paul says you must take into account the interpersonal relational skills as well. Now, Jesus is our prime example of a servant, the suffering servant. Now, let's look at the relational qualities that Paul says every disciple maker needs to have. Whether you're a spiritual leader, where you're discipling another Christian, or whether you're a parent discipling your children or grandparent discipling your grandchildren. First, we must not be quarrelsome. Verse twenty four. The Lord's bond servant must not be quarrelsome. This Greek word for quarrelsome is machomai, which means to fight, to quarrel, to wrangle, to dispute. Now we get our English word macho from it, as you can see. A macho man. He's aggressive. Uh, he's on fire. He tends to fight. Uh, dispute. Paul says, the Lord's bondservant, the disciple maker, must not be this way. He must not be quarrelsome and macho. You say, what well, does that mean that the Christian should never fight? No. Because Paul told Timothy... Just uh, in chapter 4 of this same letter, verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. He looks over his life. He told Timothy in the first letter, uh, in chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Well, what do you mean then? He says that the bond slave is not quarrelsome, but yet he says to fight. Well, the answer is in verse 23. He says, but refuse. Foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Paul says, Don't fight over needless issues. Don't argue over ignorant speculations. Refuse even to discuss them because they just produce more arguments. Now, we must fight when it concerns the truth of God, the revelation of God, the scriptures. Fight for the truth. Never compromise the Word of God and the truth of God. We must fight for these matters. But when it comes to peripheral matters, we must not get in arguments and verbal fights about those matters. About matters like, what is the date of Christ's return? When is He going to come back? It's it's foolish to fight over those things and argue about matters such as that. The Scripture mentions in the Gospels, Bethany beyond the Jordan. And nobody knows exactly where that is. When it would be foolish to enter into an argument with another Christian over where Bethany beyond the Jordan is. So Paul says, hey, don't wrangle over things like that. You know, Jesus refused to enter into uh, needless wrangling and disputes. One day... A man came up to him and said, "Uh, let me ask you a question, Jesus. He says, this guy gets married, and he doesn't have any children, and he dies. But according to the Levite Law of the Old Testament, then his brother's responsibility is to take this woman as his wife and to have a child by her. Well, the second brother also dies without a child. And so the third brother... Takes on his responsibility and he marries the same woman. And he dies without having a child. So the fourth brother fulfills his responsibility and he marries this lady. Well, this happens all the way down the line through the seven brothers. Now, wouldn't you hate to be that seventh brother marrying this no bro- lady knowing that six of your brothers had died as her husband? I get a little suspicious. But anyway. And they say, now, Jesus. When the resurrection comes, which one of these men will be her husband? She had seven. Which one? Now Jesus immediately saw the foolishness of this discussion and He refused to discuss it. He said, you don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And He said, God's the God of the living, not of the dead. And He moved on. Do not allow yourself to be pulled into needless, controversial discussions. A disciple maker must not be quarrelsome. Second, we must be kind to all. Again in verse 24, but be kind to all. The word means mild. It means gentle. It seems to have the idea of affable, which means good nature. Easy to speak to. Someone who is approachable. Sometimes a parent will take out their frustration and their irritation on their child and perhaps be sarcastic toward that child. And then a parent wonders when that child grows up to be a teenager why that child won't come and talk to them. So we must be careful and be approachable. You know, all of us, have probably had somebody that we have been associated with that we didn't feel that we could just go up and talk to them. Maybe it was a coach in one of the sports that you participated in. And because of his demeanor, you'd rather do anything than have to go up and talk to him. Maybe it was a boss. And you just he was in a bad mood. He was irritated all the time and irritable. And you just didn't want to go up and talk to him. You want to stay away from him. And then there have been other people that, you know, you wanted to go up and talk to. You knew you could go up at any time. They were approachable. But that's the concept. Jesus was approachable. Now think about it. A blind man pleads for Jesus to heal him. And then people start. Getting on to this blind man saying, be quiet, you're bothering Jesus. Be quiet, you're making a spectacle. But this man didn't get quiet, he just got louder. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew Jesus was approachable. You remember one time children came up to Jesus. Now, in the culture of Jesus' day, children didn't run wild like they do in many situations today. And so for children to feel the liberty to go up to Jesus shows how approachable He was. I mean, He must have smiled a lot. He probably laughed a great deal. He was so warm that these children, they were not afraid of Him. They didn't shy away. They went up to Him and the disciples tried to keep them away. But Jesus said, don't let them come on. So, a disciple maker, we must be approachable so people will feel free to come up and we can disciple them, whether it be our children or someone else. Good nature. Thirdly, we must be able to teach. We must be able to communicate, as he says in verse 24. With his kindness... He establishes the relationship that will enable him to teach the one he's discipling. Now, think back over your educational experiences. Which class did you, or which subject did you learn the most in? As you look back, you know, you just really enjoyed the class and you really learned a lot. Now think about what kind of relationship you had with that teacher. You probably had a good relationship with that teacher. In fact, if you look back on it, probably the reason that you enjoyed the class and learned so much was because you did like the teacher. And so you see that being approachable, that being kind and not being quarrelsome lays a foundation for you to be able to teach the one you're discipling. You see, we must now have the qualities and abilities to teach because we built the relationship so we can communicate. You see, discipleship is more than just teaching information. It's imparting a life. Those that Jesus taught the most were His closest disciples. Right? Because discipleship is more than just imparting information. It's a relationship. It is imparting a life. And the disciple maker is to be capable of imparting counsel and instruction. Now, that's the importance of you building a relationship with your children and your grandchildren. So you can impart to them this information. You say, well, preacher, I'm just not a teacher. There are so many books out nowadays on discipling, there's no excuse. You get one of those books and they will walk you right through how to disciple someone. You don't have to be a great teacher. You don't have to even come up with the lessons on your own. You just be willing to be approachable and build a relationship and get the material and you can disciple whether it be your grandchildren, children, or a friend, or someone else. Jesus was the master teacher. And then next, we must be patient when wronged, verse 24 goes on to say, patient when wronged. We must be forbearing. We must hold up under evil. When he is wronged, he must be, not be resentful. The word literally means bearing evil without resentment. Now, in a perfect world, the person you were discipling would never turn on you. They would never misunderstand you. They would never take your intentions and turn them around. But we don't live in a perfect world. So there are times when the very person you're seeking to disciple, the very person you're seeking to help misunderstands or for some reason turns on you. That could be your child. It could be when they become a teenager. They turn and and there's a battle going on. If you're in church leadership, you will have that experience. Well, what happens when that goes comes about? Well, you must not be resentful when people accuse you falsely, or lie about you, or slander you, or seek to destroy your reputation. You must not be resentful, but bear up patiently, forgiving them over and over and over. You remember Jesus was reviled, he was criticized, he was lied about. But the Scripture says, though He was reviled, He did not revile in return. He did not resent those who did evil against Him. In fact, He prayed for their salvation. You remember what He prayed on the cross? Father, forgive them. And He was talking about those Roman soldiers who were crucifying Him. Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He never returned evil for evil, but returned good for evil. That's what we are to do as disciple-makers, as the bond-slave. So our characteristics, we are not to be quarrelsome, we are to be approachable and kind, we are to be able to teach, communicate, and we must be patient even when we are wronged. Now we move to the sacred duty of the bond-servant. A bond-servant has a certain responsibility that his master gives him. As bondservants of the Lord and disciple-makers, we also have a sacred duty. Paul says, first of all, he is to correct those who are in opposition, verse 25. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Now this word correcting really means to train up a child. To bring up a child. It means to instruct. It means to give guidance. It means to educate. Timothy was to educate those who were opposing him. To educate them in the truth doctrines of the faith. And in showing them the truth, he would correct them from their errors. A very important part of disciple making is teaching. We must instruct our disciples in God's Word. Inform those who agree, correct those who oppose. But notice, he must correct In gentleness. Remember, the interpersonal, relational skills are so important. The disposition of the disciple-maker is crucial. The right truth communicated in the wrong attitude will miss the mark. You see, people have a great difficulty separating the man from the message. And if someone is trying to communicate a true message, but their attitude, their demeanor is contrary to the message, it doesn't get communicated. If the teacher is rude and arrogant and has a know-it-all attitude and insensitive to the listeners, they will have great difficulty receiving his message no matter how true it is. Especially when you're correcting those who are in opposition. Who are hostile to start off with. And therefore, the Lord's servant must be gentle. He must correct them in gentleness. This word is the word meekness. It's the same word Jesus used over in the Beatitudes when He said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is controlled strength. It's controlled strength. This word was used of breaking a wild horse. Now, a wild horse does not become weak when he's broken. What happens is, his strength, which has been out of control, which has been wild, becomes under control. And his strength can be used to his owner's desires. Now, that's the picture, the biblical picture of meekness. Not weakness, but strength under control. Gentleness comes from strength, not from weakness. Now, if we had a little baby here, and we had a three year old, and we said, Pick up this baby. And though this three year old was weak, he picked up this baby. And then I went down and picked up this baby. Which one of us would be more gentle? You see, because of his weakness, the trio would be struggling trying to pull that baby up, and he would be rough. But I could reach under that baby and gently, because of my strength, pick up that baby. And so you see, gentleness does not come out of weakness. It comes out of strength. And so we, as the servants of the Lord, are to be gentle. The opposite of brash and haughty or rude. Gentleness carries the idea of humility and courtesy and consideration and politeness. We don't try to disciple people with the attitude, man, i got the truth, Buster. And if you would just sit down and shut up long enough, you'll see it too. That won't work. You know, if, if you wasn't so dumb and uneducated... You see the truth; it's looking you right in the face. That won't work. <laughs> I remember right after we got married. I know you'll find it hard to believe I could be this way, but uh, I mean, I was uh, uh, in Bible school and, and, and had had three years of Bible education under my belt, uh, uh, at least a year of Greek, and. Uh, so, Terry and I, I said, well, you know, we, 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 are a married couple, we ought to have a devotion. You know, that's what married couples should do. So, I said, we need to have a devotion time, Terry. We need to have a little study. So, she, being a good wife, she said, okay. So, we picked up the Bible, and, and, and I read a passage, and I said, well, Terry, what do you, what do you think this means? So, she started telling me, well, I said, no, no, it doesn't mean that at all. I can't believe you think that's what it means. It's just clear. I know what it means. That was the last time we did that for long. (laughs) i tell you, that attitude will not bring about disciple-making, will it? You know, we have got to be gentle, considerate, polite. We're to exercise controlled strength when we have to correct those. That may be wrong. And that's not easy because we tend to react to people that don't agree with us, especially when we think we're right. But the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness. Now, let me give you three keys to have gentleness in your disposition when someone doesn't agree with you or they stand in opposition. First, realize that the battle is the Lord's, it's not yours. The Lord will determine the outcome, not you. Don't let it become your battle. It's the Lord's battle. You stand behind His Word. Secondly, realize that they're not opposing you, but God in His Word. Keep your personal feelings out of the issue. Don't take their rejection of your ideas and your opinion, as rejection of you. And then thirdly, realize only God can change them. It's not your job to change them. It's not your job to argue them into the truth. Your job is to present the truth in love and gentleness. Especially when you're perhaps discipling your teenagers and you're having some opposition to what you're teaching and they're saying, no, Dad, I don't think that's what that means at all. Gentleness. Correcting in gentleness. Don't take it personal. Don't take it as a rejection of yourself. That's the disciple-maker's sacred duty. Now, what are the desired results? The bondservant's desired results are the conversion of those under his teaching. We are to pray for their repentance. Paul says in verse 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. We are to pray for their repentance. Now, notice God is the one who grants this repentance. That's why we pray. We say, God, grant them this repentance. Now, what is repentance? It's not feeling sorry for your sins. Repentance is to realize you're wrong and change the way you act. The word repent means an afterthought. It means to change the way you're thinking about something. Now, when it comes to sin... You change the way you're thinking about it. You realize, hey, this is wrong. This is sin and I don't want to do it anymore. That's repentance. When it comes to false ideas or wrong doctrines, it's to realize, hey, I'm wrong in this. This is not what the Word of God says at all. And I want to embrace what God says. And so as you're showing them the truth in love and in gentleness, you're praying, God, open their eyes to see your truth. Open their eyes and see Your Word. And that they will see it, and they will embrace it, and they will live accordingly. Repentance always involves a change of thought that results in a change of living. A change of the way you act. The will is always involved. There may or may not be emotions in biblical repentance. But there is always an act of the will as they change the way they're living. And this attitude leads them to a knowledge of the truth. They realize their error. And they actively pursue the truth. They change their mind. And it leads to a change of action. They move from ignorance to the knowledge of the truth. Now this is why we pray for their repentance. God will grant this. With your children, when you are discipling your children, when you are teaching your children from early on, pray regularly that God will give them a heart and a mind of repentance. That they will come to embrace the truth of God for themselves. When you are discipling others, and there may be points of disagreement, pray that God will open their eyes and give them a heart of repentance. The second thing we pray is that they will come to their senses. Paul says in verse 26, And that they may come to their senses. Now this word, come to their senses, means to move from being drunk to being sober. It's the idea of moving from drunkenness to sobriety. And what Paul is saying is, when someone is Satan's captive, He keeps them in spiritual drunken stupor. Now, when a person is uh, drunk from alcohol, they don't think clearly, they don't act clearly. Well, when someone is spiritually drunk, the same thing is true. They don't think clearly, they don't act clearly, they don't see clearly. And Paul says that what Satan seeks to do in people's lives is he seeks to bring them captive and put them under a spiritual sense of drunkenness. A picture that shows this is what too often occurs in the major cities of our nation. When a teenage girl runs away from home and she finds herself homeless on the streets Of our major cities. And someone sees her in that condition. And he goes up to her. And he befriends her. And he offers to buy her something to eat. And he slips some drug in her food or drink. And she comes under the influence of that drug. And he takes her off. And he pumps her uh, with other drugs to get her hooked. This is what Satan does. He seeks to bring people in and induce a spiritual stupor and drunkenness so they can't see clearly, they can't think clearly. And in conversion, what happens is they come out of this spiritual drunkenness and they become spiritually sober and they suddenly see clearly and they think clearly and they can act clearly. Clearly. A person comes out from under the diabolical influence of Satan. And that's what Paul is saying. Pray that they'll come to repentance and they'll understand and realize what's going on in their situation with Satan. That they're trapped. That they're in his captivity. And they'll come to the knowledge of the truth which will bring sobriety. And they will move out of his influence. And then he goes on to say, pray thirdly, they will escape. From the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Anytime you see the word snare in the New Testament, you need to realize the imagery is that of hunting. A snare was a trap that a hunter would set to catch his game. The picture again is that Satan is a hunter. And he's after the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And he sets his traps to catch them. And He seeks to catch them and bring them into His captivity and use them to do His will. Again, to bring it into modern terms, this guy that befriends this runaway teenager girl is a pimp. And His purpose of getting her under... The influence of drugs and getting her hooked on cocaine or some other drug is so she will have to get into prostitution in order to support him and he supply her with the drugs. That's a beautiful picture in its grotesque way of what Satan seeks to do in the lives of people. He seeks to bring them under his influences, under his deceit, So that he can use them as his prostitutes. Satan is just a pimp. And he wants to use people to accomplish his purposes. And our prayer is that God will deliver them from this captivity, that they are trapped in Satan, drugged by his spiritual devices and means, and that God will bring about this repentance in their minds, that they'll see what's going on, they'll understand it, they'll come to a knowledge of the truth, what they need to do to be set free, and they will embrace it through faith and be set free from Satan's captivity. And his schemes to ruin their lives. And God uses Christian servants as the means to accomplish this. He uses disciple makers who correct in gentleness as a way of helping people come out of this spiritual stupor, this spiritual condition, and bring them into the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So you see, disciple making starts even before a person becomes a Christian as you are building that relationship so that you might share the love of Christ with them, that you might share the truth of Christ with them, as you're praying for them that they would come out of Satan's captivity. They don't even realize it. They're so influenced by his diabolical schemes, they don't realize what's going on. And it's through our love and relationship and prayers That God grants them that repentance that results in the knowledge of the truth. And if they come to their senses, they realize, man, look where where I am. I want this. And they escape from His captivity. And when it comes to discipling our children and our grandchildren, the truth that we've seen today also clearly applies. First, You must build that relationship. You've got to spend time building a relationship with your children and grandchildren if you're ever going to disciple them. Scripture talks about in the Old Testament, teach them God's Word as you walk by the way, as you lie down, as you rise up. That's the picture of a continual time with them, of building a relationship and sharing God's truth in your heart with them. Secondly, it means correcting, instructing, educating, giving them guidance about the ways of God. And then thirdly, praying for their salvation. Praying for their salvation. You as a parent, you as an individual cannot save anyone. We can only pray and live the life and share the truth and pray God will do the work. We all are called to be that disciple maker. We must have the complete picture. The relational skills are very important. God's grace can grant us these skills as we seek Him and ask Him for those.